0: Welcome to the Slavic Connection. I am Tom. And this is Matt.
1: And today we have with us Seyfa Pulia, Editor-in-Chief of Russia Beyond. And actually, I'm, I'm very jealous of my college mates of Moscow State University who are now working in major Russian uh, media because when they go home from work, they see their readers, uh, people reading their newspapers or you know watching the, uh, the TV channels they're working on. There is a, a little bit of gap between us, the editorial team, Russia Beyond and our readers because most of them are abroad.
2: We had a great conversation with them about Russia Beyond, kind of why it's such a unique media for an international audience, and I think our listeners will really enjoy it.
0: Here, Save Pulya. First, just a few words about our
2: programs. (laughs) It's not uh, typical Texas. You're listening
0: to the Slavic Connection, brought to you by the Center for Russian, East European,
1: and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin.
0: Gear, Michelle? Okay, there we go. Yeah, I've been making a lot of great jokes that I've been going through.
2: Sieva, welcome to the podcast.
1: Hey guys, it's a pleasure to be at your show.
2: I have been a reader of Russia Beyond the Headlines for several years now, and I think it's probably, it's the best way for me, you know, as somebody who has a lot of American friends who don't know anything about Russia, it's my go-to site. To kind of just show them, you know, Russian culture and history and current events. And I think it's really filling a niche that I don't see filled anywhere else. And so I just wanted to say that. Tell us a little bit about the history, you know, when and why did you decide to uh, get involved with Russia Beyond the Headlines?
1: It's really flattering to to hear all these kind of words, thanks for this. (laughs) the project uh, started in 2007 and it was based on um, actually Rossiska Gazeta which is a Russian state paper of record it's like you know in many countries they use a certain selected paper to publish laws because b- before they come into power and uh, one of the managers the deputy general director of Rossiska Gazeta came up with an idea having Supplement, a print supplement about Russia in other world major dailies. And uh, oh. his name is Eugene Abov. He is my former boss. And uh, since he was also a member of uh, WAN IFRA, Uh, World Association of Newspapers. He has many friends among uh, top management uh, from other papers. So his connections really helps to create this project. So like uh, in 2007, they started with um, only three papers. It was the Washington Post uh, in the US, uh, Daily Telegraph in the UK, and the Economic Times in India. And there were like monthly eight page supplements about all sorts of what what was happening in Russia. Mm -hmm. And uh, obviously it was uh, state-funded because Rasiska Gazeta is state-funded, but the rates were not the same as for general advertisers because our goal throughout this print part of the project was to convince our partners that we are creating not advertisements, we are creating journalism content, uh, which could be beneficial for their readers as well. And uh, with, within each newspaper, we had a designated editor. We called it a sub-editor who helped us to meet the style and quality requirements of the host uh, newspaper. Obviously, this person was not within the newsroom. He was with commercial, but we tried to make it really, um, like, really needed uh, editorial background for, for these people. And they helped us a lot. So this was the history of the project from 2007 until 2016, the end of 2016. We, uh, at the peak of the project, we were publishing in like 30 dailies around the world in Japan, in China, in India, in, in France, like in all the major European countries in a lot of, uh, Eastern European countries, and in some in some of the countries we uh, we reached our goal. Like in Italy, uh, they already started uh, publishing our content not as a supplement but inside uh, the, the, the the newspaper. Like it was a specifically branded section, but it mm-hmm. was a section like inside the newspaper, not a supplement that you can pull off and just throw out. So, yeah, but then, you know, like everywhere else, the print uh, circulations uh, started going down. And um, also the the Ukrainian crisis happened and the ruble went down. So it it, uh, has become much more pricier to to publish these print supplements. And since uh, 2017, we went digital only. And I joined the project in 2008, my my first job was uh, like I was basically a content manager, so I was making sure to publish all the content from print supplements on the website. And yeah. the website was 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 really basic at the time. <laughs> so and we uh, like we, we really we didn't create any additional content apart from uh, from that was published in the supplements. So my job was really simple once a month. <laughs> yeah, just 30, 30 articles <laughs>
2: online. <laughs> I think that one of the biggest strengths of the resource, well, there's really two. One is just how entertaining and fun a lot of the content is. And the second is that, you know, given how, you know, obviously, you know, Russia's relations with the West have kind of deteriorated in recent years, it's really refreshing to see how the content, you know, it doesn't have kind of this confrontational and kind of politicized tone that you know i think a lot of us have got really used to and so i was just wondering what is your kind of editorial policy that keeps the content from kind of having this confrontational tone and instead have kind of have this sharing and open uh tone how do you accomplish that
1: yeah well uh, it was uh, it was the main goal throughout the years uh now the project is a part of rt actually like we are officially a part of rt which is you know frequently being accused as propaganda so we get a lot of such accus- accusations too just you know judging by our uh, mother company and by our source of funding because we are still state funded obviously so we get a lot of such accusations but uh, you know my answer to this is that um you know propaganda rotates around a certain message like the goal of the propaganda is to deliver a certain message and we, in our editorial policy and in all of our editorial workflow, we are rotating always around the audience. Like for us, the readers are the most important part of this. And actually, I'm, I'm very jealous uh, of my college mates from the Faculty of Journalism of Moscow State University who are now working in major Russian uh, media. Because when they go home from work, they see their readers, like on the streets. Uh, some, some of them can meet uh, uh, people reading their newspapers or, you know, watching the, uh, the TV channels they're working on. And uh, we are, there is a, a little bit of gap between us, the editorial team of Rush Beyond, and our readers, because most of them are abroad. Like, uh, I guess, out of, uh, we have foreign languages, foreign websites. The biggest part of the audience is from the U.S., so, like right. <laughs> across the pond, mm-hmm. across yes, the pond, yes. yeah? It's uh, It's a big gap. So, for us, uh, really getting the emails from the readers and getting the comments is a great motivation. And uh, we care a lot uh, about how to engage people, how to make the content uh, meeting the expectations and meeting the needs of, of, of our readers. So I think that's, uh, that's the answer to, to your question.
2: Yeah. However, you do have Russia Beyond the Headlines, Paruski, And so who, who, is, who is the audience for that resource? Is that also to Russian-speaking people abroad or is it actually more of a domestic audience?
1: The current audience is a domestic one, and we actually created this because uh, in our workflow we always had a certain amount of content that was created uh, in Russian, then translated, and then edited by a native speaker, and then published. So we thought that it's um, it's a waste uh, to just you know put it under the under the table. So we decided to create this uh, designated Russian website and then just figure out the mission and audience for it on the go. <laughs> right,
2: right, yeah. <laughs> and, and and that's a, that's a that's a kind of a tendency that I think we've seen in a lot of places because the same, a similar thing happened with RT, right? Because they they started RT на for a domestic um audience and i i totally agree it's like why waste the content if it's all being made
1: yeah but in, in their case in their case rt uh in russian is uh, they have a big separate team for uh, for the for the Russian website, it's a big uh, separate media which is uh, you know bursting a lot of domestic stories and doing a lot of domestic coverage uh, that doesn't go into that don't go into the foreign language services. In our case, it's just basically two of my best editors doing this work uh, simultaneously for the English website and for the Russian website. So we don't create these contents uh, additionally for the Russian audience. It's Mostly. What do we have?
0: How have you guys found uh, the digital format affecting your content? You know, Matt sends me videos periodically from your guy's site, and there's stuff about, you know, Russia buying back Alaska, and they're humorous, and they're also very informative, and stuff you can't really do in print media. Um, so I'm curious, did you have to have a concerted effort to kind of toggle your tone or your approach, or do you think it actually accentuated some factors that differentiate you guys?
1: Yeah, well, I think the last uh, big reboot of, of the project, when we also dropped the last two words of the of the name of the title, because we are now Russia Beyond, Just mm-hmm. we still kept the, the domain rbth.com, but uh, the project is officially called Russia Beyond now. Uh, and uh, it happened in uh, 2017 when we moved to RT. Actually, our previous multimedia team, uh, they didn't join us. They stayed at Российская Gazeta because our former boss needed them for, for other tasks uh, within the newspaper. So we had to create our new multimedia department from scratch. Uh, but uh, now we also had the superpower of, of having Raptly, which is uh, RT's um, uh, video agency who are shooting a lot of content. And having a huge video database, so in our um, in our in producing our current videos, we rely heavily on the content produced by Ratling, and uh, also the content by the third parties, by user generated content, which is being cleared uh, for for usage within uh, our uh, our media. So for us, yeah, like we have been a very Text-centric editorial team. Uh, like we started, you know, doing print media, and we continued doing print media for the most part of uh, our BTH life. Uh, so it was uh, it was a transit. It was a challenge for us to to try to build this new, you know, digital-only language to try to create new content with uh, with videos um, and with some interactive content. But I think we've actually fulfilled this task because now we are getting more video views per day uh, than uh, page views. <laughs> but I think it's also it's mm-hmm. also marks the shift in media consumption. Maybe people didn't start watching more videos uh, than they did in, with television, but the internet showed us that it's easier for people to consume uh, videos than reading texts because you have to concentrate and it's really like... I believe that there are not so many people and there have not been so many people throughout the years uh, who were able of reading a really long text to the end. <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. Um, so what do you think
1: that
0: says about sorry ma'am. No no more you more, go you, you go ahead. Digital media how, how do you think that you know goes in with just media consumption overall because I think we're kind of in an era where people are more informed of ever, but it's wider and thinner than it's ever been. And like you said, people can read a headline and kind of an idea of what's going on everywhere. But a video, you can't really just read a headline of a video. It's five minutes, you're locked in. And it actually might just be work into how people, you know, digest media now better than ever before. Do you think that's good in the long run that people are watching videos opposed to reading headlines and not actually taking in stories? Or do you think it's kind of playing into our lack of attention span?
1: I think it's natural, you know, like we are visual animals. We Mm -hmm. like visuals. Like we rely on our eyesight a lot. So we like moving pictures. We like, uh, and uh, it's again, it's very common for people, for humans in general, you know, to just take the easiest path. And this path is, uh, you <laughs> know, consuming the content that, which don't, uh, which don't uh, require a lot of efforts from your side, you know, to think, uh-huh. to analyze. So we rely on emotions in our decision making as well. And uh, consuming the media doesn't differ much from this. So um, I think it's, it's just uh, it's showing now we have the numbers to prove it now we have the now we have Google Analytics now we have Chartbeat that shows us and even with the you know corona crisis uh, coronavirus crisis, I've read a lot of predictions now that these prices will teach people uh, media literacy it will make them more you know thoughtful about uh, uh, picking the sources of content I don't believe this <laughs> I don't, even if it's, even if this quarantine is for another, you know, year, uh, it's not enough time for people to become uh, critical thinkers, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, en masse. masse. To rewire our entire consumption (laughs) of news. Yeah.
0: It seems a little optimistic.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm just looking at, uh, at the charts of uh, Russian media now, and one of the most popular stories of the past week was um, not, you know, an explainer about coronavirus or some, you know, instruction on how to fight the virus and how to avoid it, but uh, just some celebrity news about a famous uh, singer taken to the hospital because, right. they were, you know, and... Um, yeah, I'm not optimistic about this. If we talk about media literacy, I think the solution to this is to start teaching it at schools like we do with, uh, you know, math and uh, literature, uh, because we have to develop these traits of, traits of character from from childhood.
0: I mean, especially in the US, I mean, we saw all the news unfolding in China and Europe, and I don't think people really cared until Tom Hanks got sick. I think that was like, oh, this is real. That's my
1: friend. Oh, but it's the same in Russia, you know, it's like uh, we are officially on this self-isolation here for... The third week now, and uh, today, just maybe an hour ago, there is news that they are introducing digital uh, passes to come out of your home this Monday, next Monday, uh, because uh, people don't, uh, you know, abide by these rules. And when you know it's spring now, and uh, the temperature is going up and down, and like yesterday was a Kind of warm day, so more people move to the streets and like it's noticeable. So the authorities decided to that, uh, you know, harsher measures are needed to keep people at home.
2: I wanted to ask you about a piece that you wrote recently. It's called 10 ideas about how to make the ideal education for journalists in Russia. I know a lot of journalism students in Russia and a lot of them were, how should I say, dissatisfied with their education like at uh, journalism faculties at universities and so I think that this piece is very apropos and I think it's got a lot of great ideas about you know namely kind of teaching them uh, to be kind of multimedia and you know realize that you're not just a journalist anymore you're doing marketing you're doing advertising you're doing um, all this kind of self-promotion on top of your journalism work. But one of the things that I thought, thought was conspicuously absent was journalistic ethics, right? Teaching, you know, journalists about what kind of, you know, what kind of how it's what's the maximally ethical way to convey whatever you want, want your audience to know. And so I was wondering what what role do you think that journalistic ethics should play in the education of journalists?
1: You know, I see this situation a little bit uh, differently uh, from what I know about Russian, uh, you know, faculties of journalism, because I've also graduated from uh, the MSU Faculty of Journalism and I did some teaching there after this, like I had a special course for students who wanted to be media managers. and. Uh, my, um, my point of view is that uh, they are teaching a lot of journalism ethics at the faculties and it's disproportional, Like they, they don't do a lot of other things but they teach a lot of ethics and uh, it results into a lot of journalism students graduating with uh, pink glasses and then go in into the real world, and their dreams are shattered with the uh, real situation at, <laughs> uh, at the you know editorial uh, newsrooms. It, and it's not it's not it's not only because of you know these propaganda wars, information wars. It's also because of the market. I think economy plays uh, much more. Uh, much uh, more important part in uh, in doing this than any politics because you know a lot of uh, editorial teams are now relying on uh, page views and on attention of people and they try to drag this attention in a toxic way you now by doing clickbait headlines by doing you know uh, a lot of content that you are not able to consume but you know you just you have to keep it going it's like the unstoppable I don't know, Owen, you have to throw coal in. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
2: <laughs> Do you know if any of your recommendations are being um, applied by journalistic um, faculties of journalism in Russia? Because, I mean, they, they make a lot of sense and I, I don't understand why it's not going faster.
1: It's, you know, this uh, article, it caused a lot of discussion and I, I got crucified by many deans uh, from different regional faculties uh, around <laughs> Russia. Uh, and actually, there was a big conference uh, where all they all gathered, maybe one month after publishing this story, and they discussed <laughs> this article for an hour and a half, as they told me, some people who were present there. Uh, But the problem is that uh, the uh, university education is always uh, lagging behind a little bit uh, from the market and from what's happening. And it's normal. I I believe that uh, university education should be more about developing soft skills. Like you are learning to learn. You are learning to... Mm. Uh, getting new skills when you graduate like you are learning how to, to get new skills when you are already out of the university uh, not getting the not trying to get as many knowledge in your head as possible because now you know everyone can Google and everyone can take a you know one week course on how to do target targets advertising on Facebook or something like this uh, so, my idea was like for me that the most important point out of of the ones that I listed in the story is that. Uh, faculties of journalism they don't prioritize what's important and what's not like they talk about ethics they talk about management they talk about you know editing uh, they talk about the history of uh, journalism they talk about uh, Russian literature foreign literature but they don't prioritize and it results into people graduating from these faculties having a mess in their heads they don't know what will matter for their job. They don't know what will matter for their uh, uh, price on the market as specialists. And that's, that's the main problem, I think. What I tried to do on my courses uh, when I uh, taught them was to build this big picture in their heads, how all these uh, small parts work together, how media work works as a business and how it works as an influential tool and so on and so forth. Uh, and it now, you know, media goes into all uh, spheres of our lives whether it's mm-hmm. you know work mm, entertainments and all all sorts of things
0: i'm curious what you think about competition in media uh, do you think it's good to you know, I mean, a monopoly of media is probably the scariest idea, but when you get media from everywhere from TikTok to Facebook to actual front page of New York Times, uh, that almost might be worse than one single source of media. So I'm curious how you feel about that actual landscape.
2: You know, uh,
1: I think our competition is much more harsh uh, than uh, anyone thinks. I think uh, uh, we are competing now with streaming services. We are competing with video games. We are competing with all sorts of having a good time. <laughs> even, even, <laughs> even with sleeping, yeah. Because all the, all the new, all the new uh, gimmicks, all the new gadgets that we are getting now, like take uh, smart speakers, yeah, HomePod, uh, Alexa, and all sorts of things. Like we do have some in Russia as well by you know Russian uh, IT giant Yandex. It also has mm-hmm. uh, Yandex Alisa, which is uh, like a smart speaker and an AI helper. Uh, they are fighting for another 15 minutes of our time. When, for instance, we are at home and we are cooking and we can't hold a phone because our uh, hands are covered with, uh, um, with you know, with meat with right. or something. So we have to interact with the voice. We have to ask for the weather. We have to ask to read the news, or we have to ask uh, the smart speaker to read a new recipe. And then of course, all these companies are hoping that we will somehow engage with their content. Like we will order something on Amazon, or we will try, we will ask HomePod to put our favorite song on Apple Music and so on and so forth. So if, in the middle of 20th century, these big new transports for content like television, radio, they were fighting for hours of our time. Now the battle is for like 10 minutes of our time. Like, for instance, with this crisis, you know, that radio consumption and podcast consumption is actually going down because mm-hmm. people are not commuting. And right. uh, it's a big gap in our, you know, pattern of, of media consumption.
0: I don't think anyone in 2000 would have thought like, you know, consumption just actually going to get more diverse than ever. You think most industries, especially in profit, is the final goal. It's going to keep getting more truncated and truncated and truncated. Media has sort of been the opposite. It's like been a Tower of Babel type situation. Do you I mean, it sounds like your prediction is it's just going to get 15 minutes to 10 minutes to five minutes to a minute. Do you think it's just going to get worse like that?
1: Yeah, you know, what, what I'm telling uh, my fellow journalists is that you you shouldn't have to compete with your counterpart, with another newspaper. You have to compete with Game of Thrones. You have to compete with all <laughs> media. You have to take their mechanics of uh, keeping people at their screens and game mechanics and entertainment mechanics and use them in your storytelling you know, and use them in your um, website layout to keep people reading and engaging with your content. So, yeah, well, um, but again, another another side of the problem is that a lot of discussion is happening around how can we create more content and how can we create more interesting content? And uh, when the students and the journalists are thinking about their future professions, they're always talking about how it will be interesting for them to create the content, to report on certain things, to cover certain big areas, but I think that we have to reverse this thinking and actually try to think how can we save people's time and how can how can they benefit from you know engaging with our content, how it can make their lives more bright, more full of emotions and uh, different uh, you know new knowledge that they can get from there. So if uh, you start thinking in this way, I think you're, you'll create better product.
0: And so I actually want to ask you too about your podcast. Uh, I believe my Russian is nowhere near as good as Matt's, but I believe it's called The speaker's Drunk.
1: The podcast uh, you're talking about, we are hosting it with uh, two of my colleagues from different, uh, you know, media. One is an SMM manager and media manager, Ilya Lechkanov. And another one is Alex Dukov, who is a a video marketologist um, and producer on YouTube we were just you know discussing different names for the podcast, and it had to be short it had to be simple and it had to be a distinctive google search like it shouldn't be <laughs> occupied you know by other search terms so we had a list of uh, i suggested a list of maybe 20 different um different options and all of them were rotating around uh, rotating around something went bad during the workflow like for instance Mm -hmm. you're recording a podcast uh, you invited a speaker and the speaker is drunk so that was the idea (laughs) (laughs) i would try to create these mechanics so like we offer any guest that comes to our podcast a drink And we don't tell uh, the listeners until the end of the podcast uh, whether he agreed to it or not. (laughs) They have to decide by themselves.
2: (laughs) And so, you know, with regard to podcasts, uh, I know that, you know, podcasts are becoming more and more popular in Russia. Um, I think that that popularity is kind of, you know, coming from uh, the West in the United States. But do you think, I mean, how can podcasts can, can continue to be entertaining and keep The interest of listeners if they go on for so long right like a lot of our podcasts are you know 45 minutes to an hour and so I was just wondering what are your thoughts on the future of podcasts as kind of an entertaining uh, media do you think that they will survive or more entertaining and kind of flashy media will replace them
1: you know I think it really it really depends on the scenario of uh, of consumption Uh, when uh, there are driverless cars uh, out there, And our hands and eyes uh, will be ready for more, you know, entertaining media. Uh, the radio and the podcasts will be gone, unfortunately. It's just because it's, uh, it's much more fun to uh, look at the picture while listening to something. Right. And, uh, that's why actually a lot of podcasts in Russia, they also have a video version. So they try to do something more, the, the best of them, uh, they try to do something more, uh, elaborate. Uh, they, they invite the audience, they do some, they, they shoot it from multiple cameras. So they do a TV show actually, not a podcast, but they also provide it in an audio format for those who, who can't uh, watch uh, the picture. So I think it's, uh, it's really the question of uh, when Elon Musk will uh, flood the world with uh, rivalists like Tesla.
2: Another thing I wanted to ask about is that you've been putting out these uh, trends and new media articles for the past several years. And in your one for 2020, uh, you talk about the Instagramization and YouTubeization and TikTokization of uh, mass media. Well, what, what do you mean by that?
1: Yeah, we are, we are writing these trends. Uh, it's not only me, like we are writing, uh, with, uh, my, some of my other colleagues. Uh, and when we were discussing this trend is, uh, that any, uh, kind of, um, of a person's routine, of any kind of a person's activity, can now be put on YouTube, on TikTok, and on Instagram, and it multiplies the reach for these activities. Like uh, they are slightly different. Like the mechanics and the audience uh, on on the YouTube, on Instagram, and on TikTok are slightly different, but uh, they all have become the new gatekeepers for the audience. Like you know this concept. Uh, When the newspapers and TV channels, they were the gatekeepers to keep uh, the messenger or uh, the advertising company from the big audience and they were deciding who to let into the garden with their audience and now these new gatekeepers uh the platforms uh, they decide who to let in and uh, according to their algorithm like the algorithms decide uh, who will be popular and who will be not and it's interesting to see the differences between uh, different platforms because on the on, on instagram uh if you are popular often Offline, you will be popular on Instagram, like if you are Kim Kardashian, you will be popular on Instagram instantly, but it doesn't work for TikTok. Uh, Like it doesn't translate instantly your popularity offline or on Instagram, it doesn't translate into TikTok because the algorithms in uh, TikTok, uh, it's really hard for me to pronounce this word. Uh, okay. The algorithms in TikTok, they work uh, based on talent not on uh, status Hmm. it's like uh, if you are talented if you can uh, drop a tennis ball into a cup from five meters uh, you will be popular you don't have to be Kim kardashian to become popular on tiktok if you if you're really good at something if you can and uh, if you think about it like we when i when i was a kid we did a lot of these stupid crazy things just in our courtyard and now it's possible to record them and put them on, on TikTok or on YouTube and become popular and get rich and get uh, viewers and discuss mm-hmm. it. Um, so uh, it's not much difference from what was happening 20 years ago or 30 years ago. It's just uh, there are new ways of communicating it. There are new ways of uh, getting more people into it. When traditional media are discussing this phenomenon of, of, of the platforms and of this stupid content that flooded these platforms, they just don't get it that it's it will be natural for for people to watch how uh, they throw mantas in coca-cola and create this uh, eruption (laughs) (laughs) then you know discuss that saudi arabia and russia opaque deals and how it influenced the price of the barrel because en masse it's not interesting if it's if it's not impacting Mm. your life of course Yeah, I don't know
0: if TikTok is talking about the oil trade war too aggressively. I'm also embarrassed to admit I have like no idea what TikTok is. I know it's a thing and it matters and I just haven't met. Are you
2: on TikTok? No, 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 by no means. No, Yeah, just because we are too
0: old for this, you know, yes. But I I also want to make a point just about YouTube in general. They really Google released YouTube earnings for the first time, I I think last year or so, and it was essentially the same as Netflix. And YouTube has the benefit of its users don't pay for it and the people putting the content on don't get paid until they actually get out of what the advertising is paying them. So, I mean, compared to print journalism, it's impossible to compete with something we have to pay creators and users have to pay for it versus thing where it's completely hands off. It's the, the, mod, the medium pays for itself. It's just this, this totally unmatched entity.
1: Just a small correction. Uh, there is a product called YouTube Premium, uh, where mm-hmm. you pay, where you pay for the YouTube uh, without the ads, and they also offer some content uh, which is not accessible to its free users. I, I believe there are some uh, TV shows and some of them. Mm-hmm. The good ones, uh, as I've heard of them, I, I just, I even put something on my backlog to watch later, uh, during maybe the next uh, six weeks of quarantine. <laughs> <laughs> I think wow. a Karate Kid sequel, uh, Cobra Kai was a really successful TV show on that. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. You're right. I don't know what's happening on, on the American YouTube, but I can, I can tell you about the Russian YouTubers. Uh, they get a lot of money from advertising, uh, mm-hmm. greatness like there are two sources of income uh, for them. One is uh, the advertising that is going on within their videos, uh, which is, uh, you know, put there by the YouTube itself, the pre-rolls, the mid-rolls, the post-rolls, and all of this, the banners. uh, And uh, another source of income, which is uh, more than 90% for many of them is the so-called integrations. When they do the advertisement directly in their video and Mm -hmm. they, Tell, tell their viewers, hey guys, it's going to be an advertising now and I will tell you about this product. And some are doing really creative work with it. Like they try to tell a little bit about themselves and then just a little bit about the product uh, so that it will seem natural, not like a, a back shot and then just some tagline. <laughs> mm. <laughs> not like this.
2: A few years ago, there were there was talk about um, well, you know, you so YouTube and Instagram are uh, you know American companies, and there's been a lot of talk in Russia about you know maybe uh, changing over to domestic analogs and domestic replacements. Like uh, there was this talk of this thing called RuTube, and so I was wondering, do you think that that there could be a scenario where? Um, kind of uh, uh, Western social media, things like YouTube or Instagram could be um, banned in Russia? And what effect would that have on kind of the multimedia system in Russia?
1: You know, I think Russia is one of uh, very few countries where... Uh, we have our own uh, search engine, which is more popular than Google. And we have our own uh, social network, VK, Contacte, which is more popular than Facebook. And we actually have a few of them. We have on as well and some other, you know, social platforms that, uh, that are surpassing uh, Facebook, for instance. But I think uh, Instagram is more popular now in Russia as well uh so it's it's a unique uh it's a unique situation so i i can't believe that at some point uh, they might ban uh and th- we have a case they banned uh, linkedin the- yeah social network it's banned in in Russia and I can access it only via uh, VPN Uh, so it will of course it will affect uh, how we consume content because for instance um, I know that uh, in the US Facebook is more like a housewives uh, social network but in america but in russia it's more like a professional social network like hmm. a lot of people a lot of media yeah. professionals are on it and uh, there are some really interesting posts so it's more like a linkedin for us actually yes 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 use it like linkedin and i i have found a lot of uh, uh, employees by uh, a facebook post Hmm. Uh, so it, it really works uh, in this direction uh, for us. So, But I guess um, uh, like we, we are really uh, used to adopting new tools and new instruments, and uh, I think it won't be a problem to learn how to use VPN and proxies and so on, like we already do with some of the websites that are banned here.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, of course, there there is a constant you know battle when you install VPN and they add it to a blacklist and so on and so forth. Yeah. But it will be somehow figured out. Like with Telegram, you know that uh, messenger that was created yeah. mm-hmm. by Pavel Durov, the founder of Kontaktia, mm-hmm. and uh, Telegram was officially banned in Russia. Uh, because they didn't want to disclose the encryption keys to the federal security services. It was a constant battle when they were introducing new and new uh, ways of uh, filtering the telegram traffic and accessing, uh, you know, telegram on different mobile devices. And apparently it's it's still working and it's, uh, it's been used by state media. It's been used by Putin's press secretary, Dmitry Peskov, for <laughs> uh, yeah. his press conferences. Yeah. So <laughs> uh, it's, uh, it's a peculiar situation here with, you know, digital tools. <laughs> That's yeah. so funny you talk about how Instagram's so
0: popular because even in America, when Facebook has bad press and either you see stock dips or users go down, Instagram remains exactly the same, if not higher. They've somehow totally you know segregated it from its core product, even though, I mean I think per, per unit it's probably its most profitable entity.
1: It is, and uh, I think it's because uh, you can't write long texts on uh, Instagram. It's uh, still visually based. Uh, But, you know, I see more and more cases now uh, in Russia and uh, in former Soviet republics and abroad as well by the news media of using Instagram. They use stories in a creative way. They use uh, the post in the main news feed in a creative way, adding more text to the pictures and, uh, you know, creating whole games in the stories. So, um, it's interesting how we are you know adopting the tools that were not necessarily developed for uh, news broadcasting and news consumption uh, to do it. Uh, and actually, we in Russia Beyond, we just uh, last week, uh, our design department uh, finalized the new templates for uh, Instagram posts. So we are also thinking of adding more, uh, more different contents to our Instagram because we see that uh, demand from the audience. They don't want to uh, get only, you know, beautiful pictures from us. They want to consume some of our content in a, a very short, uh, digitized way.
2: what are your kind of your plans for the for the future are you looking to stay at Russia Beyond for the time being or do you have any other um, projects that you're kind of exploring or thinking about uh, getting into and do you think that I mean we kind of talked about this a little bit at the beginning but kind of more concretely uh, do you th- I mean people are talking a lot about how COVID-19 will change the media landscape forever uh, do you believe that COVID will accelerate change, or that things will kind of stay the same going forward, or just kind of continue at the same pace? I guess kind of two questions.
1: Yeah, I think I'll start with the second one. So I think that uh, the the COVID nineteen will be uh, will accelerate a lot of processes, so the processes of uh, you know of of print media dying uh, because a lot of people will be just. Um, Uh, afraid of touching things, afraid of taking a newspaper in their hands. And a lot of, I know that in the U.S. uh, already a lot of uh, newspapers have laid off a lot of stuff. And uh, in Russia, uh, some some companies stopped or put on hold the production of print uh, newspapers. So that's one thing. And I hope that it will kill a lot of, you know, toxic toxic ways of, of earning money by the media, like the media that relied only on uh, page views, um, for instance. <clears throat> they, there won't be enough advertising money for them now. And uh, they will be really picky from, from now on to where to put their money. And uh, <clears throat> like, for instance, they are now seeing a lot of, uh, a lot of people's attention shifted to streaming services and uh, there are some of them who are offering uh, advertising options as well so it will be another you know a big rival for for the media the streaming services <clears throat> as well so yeah the, the the media landscape will be drastically different after uh, covid-19 this both uh, has good and bad consequences and i guess it could be um these uh, layoffs and these cuts or could uh, developed to the point where there will there won't be enough uh, professional journalists to cover the crucial areas to cover the crucial topics. Uh, and uh, I just this, this afternoon I was reading the news of uh, the Denver Post from Colorado, and I'm I'm following them because I did some internship uh, with them uh, back in 2013, one month internship, and uh, they also reported uh, you know uh, some layoffs, and they are very concerned. Uh, uh, that uh, it's like the Denver Post was the only remaining print daily uh, in the in Colorado and in the area. And there the won't be just enough, uh, you know, journalists to cover all the crucial issues and crucial topics for the community and for, for the area.
2: And I guess as far as your future, are your only plans at the moment to stay at, at Russia Beyond or do you have any other projects uh, that you, that you'd like to tell us about?
1: Yeah so I've been I've been working for uh nearly 12 years uh with Rush Beyond Now but it uh, has always been a different project yeah it, it developed it shifted it rebooted and uh, my own my own path was uh uh like I was a content manager then I was a digital manager, then the editor of the English website, and so on and so forth. And I moved to the point where I became an editor-in-chief. And I always had some, you know, side projects because, you know, working with one of the leading uh, world dailies and, uh, you know, having a direct access to their editors and uh, seeing how they are developing, I could actually predict what would happen to the Russian media. So I did some trainings, I did some webinars. before the uh, the lockdown, I traveled a lot around Russia with uh, you know lectures and speeches and so on. And um, uh, I believe I helped a lot of media companies in Russia to shift their operations to get ready for the new digital reality. And we also created uh, with, a few, uh, with a few of my friends, we created a company called Media Toolbox, which is a consulting company. So we consult media and other businesses on how to communicate their messages and how to work with their audiences better. So, and it's always, it always has been a really great, a really great activity for me because I could a little bit um, shift my mind from one task to another, which uh, kept me, out of, you know, just doing one and the same thing uh, all of the time. So I was bringing some new, fresh perspectives into what I was doing at Russia Beyond. So for now, I'm really happy with uh, how project is going, Russia Beyond is going. And obviously, March was a great month in terms of traffic for, for many years around the world. And it was a record month for us as well. Like we nearly hit five million unique users uh, on our, all our like foreign websites, um, and uh, I, I hope to keep some of them. You know, because like it's normal for us to have from three to four million uh, unique visitors. And now the challenge for, uh, for us and for many other medias is how to keep uh, some of them, how to convert them into returning visitors and uh, later into loyal uh, visitors. So that's, that's the challenge. And we are thinking now about it, what other products we can um, uh, provide them with apart from like a newsletter and just stories and videos and so on.
2: No, I was wondering, when I look at Russia Beyond's website, kind of the format reminds me a lot of BuzzFeed, actually. And I was just kind of wondering generally, what are kind of some of the websites or media platforms that you kind of take inspiration from or the ones that you just kind of uh, read regularly just to stay abreast of new developments, so to speak?
1: Yeah, I I can say that BuzzFeed is one of our favorite uh, websites that we follow closely for, you know, new formats and new creative ways of engaging the the audience. And uh, they they, they actually did a very smart thing when, uh, like, you know, they started as a website uh, about, you know, cat videos, cat pictures, cat GIFs. And then so on. And then they introduced uh, the news coverage. They, had they got the, reporters, yeah. Yeah, they got real reporters. They got real editors from, you know, uh, prominent uh, journalism organizations. And it was a great thing of, uh, you know, creating this core of the audience, of keeping people, you know, of uh, coming back to their websites uh, every day, not when they just, when they get bored in the queue or something like that. Another point um, uh, points of inspiration in terms of video for us is Vox. Like we watch a lot of Vox videos and they do great explainers. Mm -hmm. So uh, what we try to do is we uh, reverse engineer some of them. Like we are watching them and we are discussing how, how they uh, create these, you know, hooks for people's attention, how they keep us entertained throughout the video and how they keep our attention and how they drag us into the, um, uh, the story. Um, So we also, like, I personally look at, uh, a lot of media at Quartz, at uh, the Scheme, uh, in terms of, of the newsletter. Oh, yeah. And uh, some of the Russian media are quite inspirational as well. For instance, uh, the recently launched Reminder Media. Hmm. Uh, which is about health, uh, mindfulness, and philosophy. It's an interesting focus for media, but I guess it's something that is uh, that a lot of other media are lacking now. You know, talks and content about philosophy and you know well-being, mindful well, well-being. Yeah. And uh, <coughs> of course, different. You know, bloggers are an inspiration because I, re- I really, I really believe that uh, this new fresh uh, way of talking the new fresh way of presenting the information is what a lot of traditional media are liking as well. So we have to, um, we have to learn from them. We have to learn from uh, telegram channels who are just posting maybe memes (laughs) to keep the audience entertained because that's what people want. You know, one of my favorite sayings is that uh, even if you have three, uh, you know, degrees, even if you are a doctor of philosophy, uh, you can't help watching a video with a sneezing panda. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I think
0: BuzzFeed has actually perfected that. The news is really good, but they still pe- keep people with, you know, which Simpsons character quiz are you? And, and I'm also glad you brought Vox because, Matt, that reminds me of the video, the task video you sent me of a Putin interview that is directly copying a Vox interview of Obama from, I think, 13 or 14. It's the exact same style. And it's totally mesmerizing, but you can have two more different people being interviewed.
2: Right. As somebody who reads a lot of Russian media, very often I do make these associations where I go, oh, they took that from Vox, or oh, they took that, you know, I can I can see the stuff being kind of transferred and copied and introduced into the Russian med- media sphere. Um, I, I also just wanted to say, you brought up Vox. There's a Vox re- YouTube uh, reporter named Johnny Harris who looks eerily similar to do to you. I don't know if you know who <laughs> I'm referring to. Do you? I've heard, heard this a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we'll and we, to we
1: like his videos too. I think he's doing a great job uh, uh, and uh, he he's bringing fresh perspective to some of the more complicated topics. You know, I per- personally liked his borders uh, series. It was awesome. We'll have to put up a side-by-side, spot the difference
2: type picture of you too. Yeah, we'll have to do that for sure.
0: It's a, we're, we're approaching the end of our time, um, and I usually uh, end by asking, at least in coronavirus, if you've picked up some uh, some new hobbies or maybe reinforced some old bad habits in your time of being
1: isolated indoors. Yeah, well, uh, my favorite one is the pants challenge, you know, which is happening <laughs> in Zoom conferences when you dare other, you know, participants to just stand up and show whether you're wearing pants. <laughs> <laughs> Can we do that now? <laughs> sure. I'm, I'm, just, I'm just kidding. Okay. Um, well, you know, I've, I've started doing more exercises. I started doing more exercises uh, and I, I find some uh, pleasure in it, actually. I'm huh? not a big person and I like snowboarding, but that's it. I do it only in, in winter. So now I'm, I'm doing a lot of exercising and I feel that it uh, keeps me going. So I'm not feeling down. I'm not in depression. And uh, it really gives me the energy, which is much needed in these times when we are locked in these four walls. <laughs> so yeah, that's, that's a relief. Uh, I can't say that I cleared a, a bit of my backlog of books and, uh, you know, movies. I've, I've watched some, some TV shows on Netflix and on, on some Russian streaming services. Yeah. But apart from that, unfortunately I haven't learned anything new now, <laughs> but well, at least I'm uh, keeping myself, uh, you know, busy with exercises. <laughs> you might be one of the few people to get in better shape from quarantine. Yeah, probably, I hope so. <laughs>
2: well, uh, Seva, thanks for coming on and uh, stay safe and uh, try to enjoy your quarantine as much as possible. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. It's been a pleasure.
0: The views expressed on this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the show or the University of Texas. Please visit slavxradio.com for more information. Thank you for listening. The Slavic Connection is produced by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you.
1: Yeah, thank you guys. You do enjoy your time and uh, try to find something to... You know to inspire yourself and yeah. to entertain yourself as well <laughs> we'll we'll do next to do, time we'll, we'll have to have drinks before we'll do the
0: pants challenge by the end i'm in favor of that being the title pants challenge but
2: i, I would have failed i mean here like i I would have failed the pants challenge i'm in shorts oh shorts.
0: i'm wearing a Celtics jersey so i mean you know it's all okay